I am thrilled to announce that Enactor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc. All one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is KindFarmsInc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today, my guest is editor and one of my closest friends, Devin Kincannon. Devin Kincannon is someone who's been in the editing trenches for a long time. He worked for Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, gross. That Harvey. His last film was nominated for an Emmy. He's an incredible guy and has so much talent and there's so much ahead of him. I'm so excited for you guys to hear the episode. Here it is. Devin Kincannon, how you doing, man? Hey, Ryan. Welcome to An Actor's Spares, bro. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, man. It's hard to believe I've known you for 11 years now. Yeah. We met at NYU. Yeah, like first couple of weeks of school. Yeah, that's how it goes. And then here we are, old yep. you know, geriatric bros. Yep, yeah. And one of the few people I still talk to from NYU. Same. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it goes, man. Yep. 250000 for four friends. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, man, I'm such a big fan of you as as a person and and it, and everything you've done in your career is so cool. And you just got nominated for an Emmy. We were just speaking about that. Yep. But you didn't win, so no. fuck the creative. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. yeah, I'm all about making enemies early. Yeah, sure, podcast. sure. So Devin, man, um, you grew up on Long Island, right? I did. Yeah, uh, I grew up like an hour from the city in Massapequa. Okay, uh, home to. Jerry Seinfeld, the Baldwin brothers. <laughs> oh, the Baldwins are from <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, Brian Setzer. Um, you know, we have a couple claims to fame. Yeah. Um, and now me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put that on your Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's awesome. And so then what are your parents there? Are they in the arts at all? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, they're, they're creative people. Um, they're musicians. My dad, you know, raised me playing guitar and drums and stuff. Uh, they're both singers, but uh, professionally... My mom does real estate. Uh, my dad also does a little real estate. Wow. Um, and he also does uh, some finance stuff. And he uh, recently is uh, a president of a, a startup company. So, oh, cool. Yeah. Good way to go, dad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then how did the whole film thing happen for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit little bit black sheep of the family, I guess. Uh, I'm the only one really who took a profession in the arts. But um, from a young age, I was... I was uh, I was always into film and TV, and um, actually, when I was 13, my school, 
made us do this thing called National History Day, which is like a national competition about history where like everyone gets the same theme and you can pick your uh, your medium. So there's documentary, there's like poster board, there's essay, there's like spoken speech. I don't even remember the other stuff. And I partnered up with a kid who wanted to do documentary and that was exciting to me. His dad, luckily for us, had uh, some video editing software called uh, CineStream for any old editors out there. Okay. Um, It was really, really basic and janky, but, you know, we were able to put together a little documentary about the Newsboy strike of 1989, the the Disney movie The Newsies. The Newsies. The Newsies, yeah. yeah. When they went against Pulitzer and Hurts. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we did a little documentary. Christian Bale. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we did a little doc about that, and we, we did really well. We won for our school and for Long Island and then for the state, and we went to nationals, and then we got, like, 14th or something, you know. At 13, that was, like, super cool, and then we kept doing it every year. The next year, we did one about jazz and rock and sort of uh, fusion music, like, with a background of, like, race issues that were going on at the same time. So you started doing documentaries. I did, yeah. Wow. At at a very young age, yeah. Um, And then we did, like, one other one about Soviet propaganda in the Cold War. So So it oddly all came back full circle. It really did. It really did. I didn't didn't know at that moment, you know, I would be doing documentaries full time, uh, you know, 15 years later, but here we are, so... At initially, when you, you know, were in high school, were you trying to become a filmmaker more than a documentarian? You know, I was open to what film school had to offer me. I wanted to see everything that I could do there. I know in one of my college uh, <clears throat> my college applications, I actually wrote, my essay was my acceptance speech for the Oscar for Best Documentary. No uh, way! For like, from like, the, you know, the year 2040 or something stupid that I made up. Uh, so I did always have documentaries like on, the, on my mind, but I was entertaining the idea of getting into narrative and fiction uh, while I was at school um, and even after school. But, uh, you know, my path kind of led me back to documentaries, and I'm really happy there. And talk to me about, you know, NYU and film school. Was that a good experience for you? Would you do it again if you were 18 right now and you had the wisdom that you do now? Uh, Really hard to say, you know. um, I, uh, like a lot of NYU kids, am in a lot of debt. Yeah, of me course. Too. Yeah. Uh, um, Half a million. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, I felt like I loved my classes at NYU. I didn't really love the social scene much. So yeah. that's why you and I ended up just drinking together in yeah. the dorm room yeah. some many nights. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of wish that I went to like a, re- a college with a campus and got more of a traditional college experience. But at the end of the day, I don't know if I would have a career yeah. in film if I went to another school. So NYU is a great school if you want to get a prescription for Lexapro really early. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I had, had a lot of mixed feelings about NYU. Ultimately, though, you know, I have no regrets because, again, I don't know if I would be able to have the career I've had if I didn't go there and make the connections I made and the friends I made there. So And the connections you made there led you to an internship, right? It did. Uh, my sophomore year there... I was an intern for the Weinstein Company. Ooh. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I continued to intern there throughout college. And uh, I luckily, one of the editors there, Chris Passig, kind of took me under his wing. He's helped me so much in my career. And he, he gave me a job immediately out of school. I, I had my last class or final, whatever, on a Friday and started work on Monday Holy for the Weinstein shit. Company. <laughs> uh, that was back in... You were one of the only Tish kids that was like had job security. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I owe it to the internship and to Chris. And, yeah, I started there 
once I was employed there, I was basically an assistant editor for a few years and then uh, like slowly was taking over some editorial responsibilities. Eventually, Chris left and me and another guy, Scott Martin, who also was a huge help to me, kind of became co-editors there and we worked together for a while and eventually he left and it left just me, the sole editor with Harvey in New York, unfortunately. We had editors in LA too, so. So obviously... I hate Harvey Weinstein, as I'm sure the rest of the world does, but uh, you had no idea of this. This was, you were 18, 19, 20, doing internships. Yeah, yeah. Were you encountering him much during your intern? As an intern, no. Uh, As an employee, yeah. I mean, in my last few years there, unfortunately, he was around all the time, and he was in my office all the time because we were always trying to fix up his shitty movies, I usually didn't often touch the really great movies that he put out because there was no reason... Tarantino to have a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Tarantino I never touched or yeah. saw. Uh, even if we got those in the office, I would wait until I could go see it at the theater because I just, you know, Tarantino is 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 precious to all of us. Yeah, I was kind of a fixer. You know, Harvey has the terrible nickname Harvey Scissorhands, and I was kind of the scissors for a while, which is not a great position to be in. Yeah. You know, as a 23, 24, 25-year-old, I felt so lucky to be working on films that I didn't deserve to be working on. I hadn't earned my stripes in the editing field yet at all. You were working on, like, Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, doing really minor stuff for that. That was one of the first things that I really, you know, was allowed to, like, sort of... That that began my transition from assistant editor to doing some editing stuff, but really minor at first. You know, later on, it became a lot more heavy-duty surgery where I was even writing ADR lines for actors and cutting 20 minutes out of movies. And So Harvey really trusted you. He did. Um, You know, every once in a while when shit would hit the fan, um, we would bring in other hired gun editors that he knew and trusted that that were around. Um, So, you know, he he definitely understood that I was a young kid and that I was still learning. But at the end of the day, he 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 trusted me with a lot of stuff that I looking back, can't believe that he would trust me with. And obviously, I I don't want to harp on this too much, but I mean, what was the culture of working at a company like that you know obviously we we know so much about him now to be this kind of Voldemort type creature but was it like that working in that office I mean look none of us knew the stuff that we know now yeah Uh, I'll say that um but he was before his new reputation his old reputation was that he was an absolute nightmare to work with and be around and and it was it was he absolutely lived up to that behind the scenes I mean it was I was sleeping at the office many nights. I would I actually kept a an air mattress and pillow and change of clothes in my office at all times because I was sleeping there all the time, staying there for multiple days at a time and not having time to go home. Jesus. Um, he was definitely, you know, um, he he would not take no for an answer. Wouldn't stop. He he would stop at nothing really to get anything done in in a ridiculous amount of time, and you know he would take no care at all to just blowing dozens of thousands of dollars on a weekend re-edit and then on Monday morning being like, now nah, let's go back to the way it was. Who cares? You know, whatever. And okay, I guess we're just going to undo all of that. And it was like watching a car accident, but, you know, you, you, you can't look away, but you also can't do anything to help it. And yeah. it's just like, all right, I guess we're just going to, we're just going to let this guy do this. And it, and it really was, it seemed at that time that he was really losing touch with, what people were looking for in movies and how audiences would understand movies. And uh, 
he he sort of had this policy of just, you know, throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. And so he would send to me, he whatever, over the phone, or he would send someone over, or he would come over, or an email, whatever it was, and it would be, you know, 15 ideas about what we're going to do to this movie, and maybe one or two of them would be pretty good and would actually improve the movie, and the rest of it was like, you know, we would all just kind of put our faces in our hands and be like, I guess we're going to just kind of cut this and send him a link of it just so he can see how bad his idea is. You know what I mean? Wow. And we would just cross our fingers and hope and that we wouldn't get the email back like, oh, this is great. Let's do it. And we'd be like, no, he yeah. likes it. You know, now we have to do this. Now we have to tell the director that like this is going to happen to his film or whatever. So outside of Tarantino, Weinstein had final cut on all his films. It was uh, it was different film to film. You know, I didn't obviously get much into the legal stuff. It would come up just as these things would happen because it would be these little push and pulls with the director where they would claim to have Final Cut or he would or everyone would know uh, who it is. The only one I can say for sure that that Harvey had no rights to mess around with was Tarantino's uh, movies. Yeah, that seems about right. Yeah. Yeah. And he knew better. You know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then having been there in that kind of cutthroat awful culture do you feel like that kind of inadvertently prepped you for any editing job in the world sure and i think that's why a lot of us put up with it how many years did you make it there i was five and a half years an employee there so almost all of the creative team there was under 30 and i think it was because i mean it was very cheap company they knew that they could get kids who just wanted to show on their resume i put up with harvey for this many years or i i was at the weinstein company which at the time was a nice and shiny name and so you know they would have kids doing these jobs because we felt like just so lucky to be there and to be a part of these films at such a young age and so i think that's why we were kind of okay putting up with all of it because we knew that when we got out of there people would know oh, well, they could put up with Harvey for, for however, however many years. They can definitely put up with me, or they can definitely put up with my director, what, you know, if you can put up with the worst of it. But before you left Weinstein, were you in the union? No, and I, I still am not. Oh, you're still not? I'm still not. No, I haven't, I haven't been uh, offered a union gig, really. Even those films weren't union gigs? I mean, anything I did at the Weinstein Company, I, I, I'm not credited as an editor on those films. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's not even an assistant? It, and that's really for because of union rules. Like, I really wasn't allowed to be. I was part of the Weinstein Company, really represented in the credits as produced by Harvey Weinstein. There was a couple films that I was able to get onto, but even that, it was mostly like post-production supervisor or whatever, even though I was completely re-editing the films. I think the only one that wasn't like that that I, I had was this this actually a documentary uh, we ended up selling to HBO. It was about Jennifer Lopez, um, and I got additional editor on that. But that nice. Was like, yeah. <laughs> that was a Dream steal. come true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then after you leave the Weinstein, you jumped into the fire fraud, right? No, I had a few projects before that. The first thing I left for was actually a documentary about Larry Flint, who... Hustler. Yeah, yeah. he yeah. for those of you who don't know, he founded Hustler Magazine, and he later became sort of a, uh, a champion of the First Amendment and of, like, of, of civil rights in general, and a very, very cartoonish character. He ran for president against Ronald Reagan in 1984, and... Uh, he really was a was a liberal, but he ran as a Republican because it was all a farce and yeah. he was just kind of making a mockery of politics, but ultimately had, you know, had a legacy on First Amendment rulings. 
he had one, if not two uh, court cases that went all the way up to the federal Supreme Court. And I think it was like the first ever unanimous Supreme Court decision. And it was in his favor. Yeah, it's, People uh, versus Larry Flint. It's depicted in, yeah, yes, yeah. by Woody Harrelson yeah. in the in Edward the, Norton. In, so yeah, I worked on a doc about that. That that ended up getting, uh, I was really just brought in as an associate editor there. I kind of like put a rough cut together. And did you take the documentary position because it kind of echoed back to your high school sentiments or that just was coincidentally what came your way first out of Weinstein? It was uh, really the, the first thing that came came my way. And it was at the right time in Weinstein where I, you know, I was kind of waiting to finish up this one movie before I left because if I left, I would have really, you know, screwed over a lot of my fellow employees. So I was waiting for that to finish up and the offer came at the right time. So I took it and I was... I was, you know, pleasantly surprised that I was able to get a doc thing first because uh, at that point, that's really what I wanted to do. And you left before the times. And all. I left yeah. before everything went down. Yeah. yeah. So I left like this was probably April 2017. Um, and that was October 2017. Right. That yeah. was October 2017. Yeah. Um, so I left at really the, the perfect time. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Way to go. Good intuition. Yeah. Thank you. And then after you did that one documentary, just because you were on documentaries, they, they kept coming your way? Yeah, kind of. Uh, again, Chris Passig, who was the guy who who hired me at Weinstein, he, he actually hooked up that Larry Flint documentary for me. And then uh, he was an editor on a, uh, a documentary series about Trayvon Martin and the George Zimmerman trial, which was being uh, made by Paramount at the time. Yeah, like Jay-Z produced it. Jay-Z did produce it, yeah. yeah. And so he he brought me on as a, an associate editor. He being Jay-Z. I'm no, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, uh, so Chris brought me on as, a, as first an associate editor, but yeah. then uh, they ended up bumping me up to editor. So uh, so that was that was really my first real editor position on a, on a on a major documentary release. And for the audience listening out there, because I, I don't think most people understand the editing process, can you kind of break down the difference between editing a narrative film versus editing a documentary film? Yeah. Um, I know that seems like a very rudimentary question, but I don't think a lot of people understand, for example, in documentary, just how much source material there can be. Yeah, no, I, I, that actually is a question I get a lot. And is part of why I prefer to work in documentary because an editor gets a lot more creative freedom in a documentary. In a narrative, it's scripted and they shot a certain amount of takes from a certain amount of angles. And sure, you you can be creative to 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 work around that if there's a problem or if you need to cut a scene down or if you need to whatever. Or if there's change enough something. money, you could yeah, reshoot yeah, it. Yeah, you could reshoot it. Yeah. You could get ADR lines um, from the from the actors. But you're still limited to to the world of the film and to the, you know, to the script yeah. in a lot of ways. In documentary, you have however many people you've interviewed and, and whatever they have to say and all of the news archival and in most of the documentary projects I've worked on, the director will just tell me, we need a scene on this topic or on this moment, go, you know, and you just watch all the news there is to say about it and all the stuff that anyone interviewed has said about it. And for that a lot of 15 ways, second. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, you have to write it. I mean, you're writing it based on the words other people have said and you're deciding how the story gets told. So there's a lot more storytelling power for an editor if you're working on a documentary than a narrative. Interesting, because I feel like it would be the opposite. But because documentaries are usually rooted in history, you know, so you have to adhere to that, whereas, you know, narratives, their freedom of, of creativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and in documentary, you are 
you know, it's it's part journalism. So you're, you're telling the truth. Would you identify yourself now as a journalist? Yeah, I just had this conversation with another documentary editor. And it, it it's so weird because really we're not journalists. We're, we're entertainers ultimately, but we still have to abide by journalistic integrity and we yeah. can't interview someone and then play their interview bite and just put some B-roll over it and just insert the word not or something and make them say the exact opposite of what they said. Right. And so ultimately we're still bound by what, what we would consider to be journalistic integrity. So I, I wouldn't tell people that I'm a journalist, but uh, I do feel obligated to uphold, you know, some of the rules that a journalist has to follow. And so then I'm curious, so while you're doing these projects, I mean, to kind of stay inspired, is it, is it that finding the truth of, of this documentary? Is it, I mean, are you working in, in conjunction with a filmmaker? Or are they kind of overseeing the edit? Because, you know, there is a director for, for documentaries, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'd, I'd say uh, the, the editor and director and, and sometimes maybe the, the creative producers there's a lot more of a collaboration on a documentary, I'd say, because we're, you know, the director will say, okay, cut a scene about this, and you put it together, and then and then he or she will watch it, and they'll say, I like this, I don't like this, or maybe we can get more of this, and, and they're really directing the editor about how to tell the story, um, or the, sometimes they just say, you know, it's, it's great. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> totally. Um, and, and that's really fun, too, because, you know, when, when you come back and you show them something for the first time and they're impressed by it, sometimes you think of things they never thought of or uh, you figure stuff out about the storytelling that if it was if it was as simple as, as us just following directions, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Wow. That's amazing. And so then talk to me about Fire Fraud. When did that come your way? Fire Fraud. Uh, that was the Hulu documentary. Yes. Netflix's was some other yes. lesser version of. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that was that's a, about the Fire Festival. So those who don't know, that was Billy McFarland's yeah. in Job Rules ill-conceived bohemian adventure coachella-esque vacation turn nightmare yes yeah. yes and that was probably the most fun project i've ever worked on how long did you guys work on that uh hmm that was probably like i was probably editing that for like uh Eight months, something like that. And were you brought on while they were still filming the interviews with Billy McFarlane? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was brought on in in that summer of 2018, and he they had already done one interview with him. They prior to him going to prison. Right? Yeah, yeah. So so he had basically part of the deal was that he was going to do three interviews with them. Um, Unfortunately, unbeknownst to the filmmakers, or, or maybe fortunately, I guess, because it added to the story, at the same time that he was signing that contract and doing that first interview, he also had some new fraud crackling in the background that he was not telling anyone about. That Selling fake tickets. Selling fake tickets. More yeah. fake tickets, really. Um, and ultimately, when he was caught for that one, the judge just revoked his bail completely. He was out on bail for the fire Festival stuff, doing this secondary fraud. So then his, his bail was completely revoked, and he basically immediately started serving his prison sentence ahead of his trial. And so... You know, they never got those other interviews. No way. And the whole time we were like, oh, like maybe we could just do an audio interview in the prison. And it was just, it, it, it wasn't going to work out. And he was still really in, in, in trial up until almost the end of editorial. So did you get to meet him? No. Or, oh, thank God. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he was, he was rearrested. That was June 2018. That's really basically when I started. So I never, 
you know, by the time I was getting into, by the time I watched his first interview for the first time, he was already back in prison for good. We've seen these phenomenons in Hollywood often where like Hollywood will make two things at the same time that are going to come out relatively at the same, like Warrior and The Fighter and Deep Impact and Armageddon. Were you aware when you took this job that there was a competing documentary at a rival company? We were. There was a lot of, a lot of uh, weird legal stuff going on with these two documentaries being made at the same time. And Billy was first maybe going to partner with them. And uh, he apparently asked them for a lot of money and they said no. And then uh, actually this, this almost like became part of a scandal. They tried to smear us. They tried to smear you guys because you guys paid, you guys meaning the documentary paid Billy to be interviewed, right? My, My ultimate understanding of it is, is that they, paid Billy for photos and videos and marketing materials from the festival. It, they also, I think the, the, like Chris Smith and the Netflix guys tried to say that we paid him like 250 grand, which is like ridiculous and not even close. I don't know the exact number, but yeah. I know the ballpark. Um, I won't elaborate, but he was paid for some of that stuff, which is really normal in documentary. Um, oh, it is. We paid, uh, we paid a lot of people for their photos and videos of the festival. Okay. Uh, like like a, lot, a lot of the other people who were interviewed, uh, or at least that's my understanding of it. Again, I'm not in the, on the production side. But um, anyway, to get back to your original question, we did know that they were making their documentary at the same time. But we should expose WikiLeaks style. The people that were making that documentary were the very company that was hired to promote Fire Festival. Yeah. And yeah. so that, that originally was going to be a bigger part of our doc was exposing... That their doc is hypocritical. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ultimately, these guys were marketing the festival up until the day before. They were they were there. They, knew, they knew it was going to go wrong, and they were ready and waiting with their cameras so that when it did go wrong, they could make a documentary about it and make money on both ha- um, on both sides. And so we felt like that was a conflict of interest. And it is. We, we did address that in our doc, but ultimately in a much su- subtler way. It was really just, I think we said it in a card at the end. But at one point, it was going to be maybe like a scene in our documentary that that was the case. And, you know, ultimately, we left it to the crowd to to make that judgment. And they did, because unfortunately for Netflix, they they released a trailer which included their release date. And that was like, I think that was in like December of 2018, and so they were saying it was going to come out January like 18th or whatever it was of 2019. We were just about finishing up editorial at that point. And uh, we decided, you know, we had been thinking about maybe we were going to premiere at one of the festivals in March. And we decided, why wait? Let's just beat them. Because ultimately, most people have the tolerance to watch one fire Festival documentary. Yeah, somehow everyone watched both. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't think anyone was watching both. So we said, let's just beat them. And we raced as fast as we could. And ultimately, that ended up being like four days before theirs released. And I didn't even know. So I, I had, you know, I was done by New Year's and they were still in color and sound. And Is it true your, your credit card makes an appearance in the film? It does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was like kind of texting people like, how's it going? Is it going to wrap up? Are we going to beat them? Blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, out of nowhere, I woke up one morning and had like a bunch of texts from people being like, uh, it's live, you know, this is happening. Your, your movie's up there. And so we ultimately beat them. We came out on a Monday, I think, and they were coming out that Friday. And the news really picked it up as two documentaries like 
you know, going at each other sort yeah. of thing. And that became a whole new scandal. Yeah, it was like a WCW. And, yeah. <laughs> and so and so ultimately so many people ended up watching both, which like completely blew our minds. We never thought that that would be the case. Um, and Netflix is fun. You know, yeah. I, I do like it. Theirs is more about the festival. Ours is more about the social issues that sort of created this monster. The climate for yeah. something like this to happen. Yeah, 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 exactly. So ours is a little more big picture, um, but they obviously had some some great stories from people at the festival. So I'm glad that everyone watched both. They kind of work, uh, they work well hand in hand, I think. And and so you were you did that one before Trayvon or? Uh, no, it was Trayvon first, and then Fire Fraud. Amazing. And I'm curious to talk to you about this. You know, I took a class on documentary at NYU, and they said great documentarians lie and i don't know like the first documentary of all time was nanak of the north and nanak the, right yeah 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 oh they, my they, god they staged I'm, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to film school yeah, i know I right totally yeah. forgot about that but yeah. Uh, yeah yeah i do remember all, all the scenes were staged in that documentary and in your time and working in documentary have you have you found that to be true i i i guess i guess i would say no but I understand the notion. I mean, really, it's it's that at times great storytelling requires you to. It's not, I, I wouldn't even really say lie, but you know, you you want to tell a story in a creative way that's timed well and paced well, and so, you know, maybe you have to withhold facts for three minutes while you explore one thing, and then you say, but in the end, you know, these facts come out or whatever. A lot of times, that really is. Revealing the facts in the way they they were re- revealed to society at the time. So right. even though we may know ultimately whatever who won the fight or who won the court case, like we still want to say, oh, here are these facts that society has been digesting, and then a week later these facts come out, and so yeah. you still have to control the release of information in a way that's entertaining and that's sort of true to the way it happened to society. So there's a lot of like there, there's a lot of back and forth about how is the best way to tell the story and part of that is what is the most true way, what is the most fun way, you know. And I'm curious to talk to you about like the tonal editorial of do- like for example, the reason I bring this up is, you know, making a murderer, right? A lot of people argue that the way that show is edited, it's like almost a piece of agit propaganda to make you feel all these feelings, you know, and it's edited in a certain way to make you just feel so enraged, you know? Right, right, right. For sure. There's there's some documentaries that are more entertainment than than journalism. Interesting. And do you feel like you know when you're working on which one, or is it kind of found in the edit? I, I feel like a, a lot of times you probably can tell when the when the job is offered to you, you know? But there have been times, uh, I, I guess I, I won't say on which projects, but there's been times where I would say to the director, you know, I feel like there's a, there's a truer way to portray how this went down. Like, I get why we can tell the story this way and we're not lying, but wouldn't it be more truthful if we just said this and let the audience make their judgment as opposed to like kind of baking the judgment into the scene? Yeah, we like sometimes a director will will want to to tell the audience how to feel as opposed to, you know, I, I think maybe we'd all reach that conclusion if we just saw the facts laid out straight in front of us. And that's that's definitely a push and pull that will happen in in any edit, edit room for a documentary. Wow. And do you feel now that, you know, you just got nominated for an Emmy and that whole thing happened that you'll continue to work in documentaries or do you feel a narrative yearning to go back to, you know, what you used to do? I mean, I, I would prefer to work in documentaries probably for for at least foreseeable future. 
And I've worked in documentaries for a long enough period of time now that it may even be difficult for me to get back into narrative. Ultimately, because everything I did at Weinstein I wasn't credited for, I'm not the editor of any narrative films. So it would be tough. It would be a tough sell for me to go to somebody who's making a narrative and say, you know, I'm the right editor for you right now. And I feel like even having Weinstein on your resume now is like, ooh, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, people people aren't going to really hold that against Blame me. You. I haven't yeah. haven't yeah. I haven't come across that. But you know, I think if I was to to really convince someone that I would be the best editor for a narrative, they would they would probably have to know be familiar with the work I was doing at Weinstein. And that's not out of the question for sure. As long as I can continue to get documentary gigs i'll probably keep taking those have you been kind of a a documentarian enthusiast as you've been editing these ones or have you just been so busy with work you haven't really seen a lot of documentaries it's a little of both i'd say i see fewer documentaries than people expect and part of that is because when you when it becomes your work your time away from it is is spent on other things but at the same time i want to keep my my finger on the pulse of what's being made and what's going on and I want to be part of the conversation and I am looking for inspiration too in in new documentaries and I what inspires you you know while you're so absorbed in all this source footage and trying to get through it how do you stay sane it is tough you know when you're if you're on a gig for over a year you do get bored with the material and uh, because you know how it ends and yeah yeah. and you've seen it 500,000 times in a billion different uh, arrangements and you know it's it's hard to take a step back and watch a scene that you've been cutting for the past six months and still feel the emotion that somebody who's never seen it before is going to feel and and be able to judge it as if you're in that position and ultimately you know we do get there I still will you know just this week was playing back a scene you know that I cut a few weeks ago and kind of took took a step back from and was working on other stuff and I opened it back up uh, earlier this week and was 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 tearing up, <laughs> which is great, you know. And it, it like it kind of like renews that that ability to to be the audience for a minute and like watch it as if you've never seen it before. And so, I think you you, you still we're able to get there. But sometimes I have to call a friend in or something and be like, hey, can you watch this? Does this make sense? You forget that because you've seen the scene a million different ways and you know all the information. Maybe you cut some important information that you're just expecting everyone to know. Because you know. Because I already know it and I'm watching the scene with the knowledge in the back of my head. Yeah. That was helpful during Fire Fraud, actually. I, I uh, had some friends watch a couple scenes that I was working on, and they were like, well, this makes no sense because of this. And I was like, oh, right, everyone doesn't know this. Yeah. You know, this that's a very important fact that I probably should put back in. So that stuff is helpful, and, and ultimately, you know, you have to have some sort of check before you go live with any any cut. Can you talk about what you're working on now? Yeah, right now I'm working on a project called The Last Dance. Um, There's already promotional materials out there, so you all can Google about it. Um, But it basically is a documentary about uh, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in the 90s um, and the dynasty that went from... 91 to 98, and how they all got there, basically. They um, all being like Dennis Rodman, Scottie yeah, Pippen. Yeah, the team, yeah. the coaching staff. Um, 
basically that last year, the last dance, uh, that right before Michael Jordan retired the second time, they had done a three-peat. They won three in a row, and then Michael Jordan retired, went to play baseball for a year and a half. And he came back, and they won two more championships. And the, so this last season, they were going for that uh, the third championship, really the sixth, the sixth championship. And uh, they had hired a documentary crew that year to follow them throughout wow. the year. So a lot of this footage has been sitting unseen for 20 years, and it's like, 500 hours of footage that they shot. Oh, between. my God. Did they win it? Oh, you'll have to watch. Uh, <laughs> or, or, or you can Google it. I can figure um, this out. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. A phone yes. sitting right in front. Um, yeah, for, for uh, um, you know, that, it's 21 years ago, so I'll, 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 I'll spoil it for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they did win. They yeah. did win. Michael Jordan famously hit... Uh, Hit a shot to win the game with a the la- a buzzer beater and went out, you know, on top. Wow! Yeah, it's really exciting. I wasn't a big basketball guy, um, which I made very clear when I interviewed for the job. I oh, was really? Like, yeah, I was like, look, I you know, I'm not coming in with all this basketball expertise. I'm an editor. They needed the story to make sense to people who aren't big basketball fans. Um, obviously, when you're watching the best of Michael Jordan every day for a year, you know, I've grown. A greater affinity for basketball and I can appreciate the art of it and I can appreciate his impact on it a lot more now so can you for the some of those people that are you know maybe aspiring filmmakers or aspiring editors out there you know now that you did do the NYU thing and I know you mentioned that that led to a lot of connections now in the world that we live in now with like YouTube and so many tutorials and ways for those kind of like oh man do I go to film school what would you suggest Oof. Um, I would say, I mean, I would say, yeah. Um, but it's hard to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's 17 right now, because, you know, there are these, these, these shows, these artists that get picked up off of their YouTube channels, you know, Broad City did that. They were, they were just a web series. Uh, High Maintenance was a web series and now it's an HBO show. Um, a great HBO show. But those people, I can't really speak for the for for all of them individually, but I'm sure a lot of those people did go to to school first uh before they were making those yeah. YouTube channels. Because the tools are so widely available to people, I'd say yes, go to film school, but also keep keep doing what you're passionate about in your free time and and make it available to people because obviously if the right person sees it, it can make or break a career for sure. And while you were editing narratives for the actors out there, what do you think makes for a great take as an actor? Whew, well, uh, I've never done an acting class, so I can't, I can't uh, give really great advice. Just by watching so many different takes from all the films that you got to work on. Yeah, what yeah. You, what were the commonalities that you saw for the actors that were able to always deliver a good take? Uh, there's definitely you know, something to be said for for being really comfortable and being really comfortable not only with your character but with the other characters um you know great chemistry almost outdoes a great individual performance at times you know if yeah. if two actors are really bouncing off each other well or or more than two that ultimately is is a great take um even more so than if one person shines and somebody's kind of not vibing with them so you know being comfortable with your character knowing your character well can you can tell sometimes when even the best actors you could sometimes tell when they're acting and when they're like being their character and it's so funny I I I had mentioned that I did a little bit of work on Silver Linings and one of the things was 
very much an assistant editor thing, but I, I had to watch all every take of that movie. Jeez, we should really look into my NDA before this part of the story goes live. Um, it's okay. <laughs> but, uh, it, um, the NDA is dissolved. Yeah. I'm, uh, I mean, one thing that was so crazy about watching those takes is is there were some scenes where De Niro didn't know his line. He would uh, he'd ask for the line, they'd tell him the line, and then he would deliver it like, you know, it's the hundredth time he's delivered this line on a Broadway stage and like he he would he would kill it and it would be amazing because he, you know, he's ultimately, done it for so long. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's so good. He's yeah. he's done it for so long. Even if he forgot his line, he knows the story. He knows what's important about the line. And so once he got it, he was still able to deliver it like, oh, oh my God. Okay, well, I guess this is going in, you know. So that was something that kind of like took me by surprise uh, as a young kid going through all these takes of a, of a great film. And then I'm curious to talk to you if you don't mind. If not, we can cut this. But like you are diabetic, right? Yeah. <laughs> and how has that impacted your career as an artist? Um, you know, ultimately... It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't impact my day to day life that much. Every once in a while, something will come up where something's just not right, and maybe I, I have to go home, and maybe it sucks for everyone that I have to go home, you know. And sometimes there were there were times where I would have to, you know, look Harvey face to face and be like, Harvey, I, I'm I'm gonna be sick, you know, like something's something's wrong, and I don't have what I need with me, and that's just what it is. And in those moments, even Harvey Weinstein has, you know, will will say health is always first like do what you have to do ultimately that's that's the answer at the end of the day and and you know sometimes it sets everyone back a day or whatever it does but everyone's really understanding with it and uh just a few weeks ago i just made a stupid mistake and you know was at the end of a bottle of insulin and uh just forgot to bring a new one and so like halfway through the day i was out and um, luckily, there wasn't anything super urgent that day, and I just went home a little early, and everything was fine. It's it's never gotten uh, never gotten to a grave circumstance. I know there's a community. Like, are you 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 went to like summer camps that helped other diabetic? It was like a young diabetic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a sleepaway camp for kids that were diabetic, and the counselors were all diabetic, and it was called Najetta. And ultimately, I was diagnosed when I was 14, and um, I was very much still sort of. Uh, almost like a victim for a few months. I still was like, it was hard to like reacclimate to every part of life, especially as a, as a young teen where like life is changing so much already. Um, but so that was in November and that summer I went to the sleepaway camp actually at the suggestion of, uh, Clark Gillies, great Islander, great New York Islander, Clark Gillies. Yeah. Um, he just, I, I was introduced to him through, uh, through a family friend and he, you know, sat down and talked to me about it. And I was just getting back to playing hockey as a diabetic at the time too. So he suggested that I look up this camp and uh, I did. And it like completely changed my life. I suddenly met all these diabetics who had it their whole lives and they totally were leading normal lives, like doing all the normal things that kids do. And um, suddenly I was surrounded by these pros who, who had mastered diabetes already. And it kind of like, for the first time made me feel like, oh, like I can just be a normal kid and just kind of take, you know, five minutes every few hours to deal with this. And so I ended up being a counselor at that camp, uh, which helped me manage my own diabetes better too, because when you're, when you're taking care of like little kids, you, you want to be good at it. Lives are on the line. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, so it made me better, 
uh, it made me uh, better at taking care of myself, and I still carry a lot of that stuff with me today. So. And then I know it can be gimmicky, but how, how did it feel to get nominated for an Emmy for Fire Fraud after all that you know work and that journey? Um, yeah, I mean, I, actually, I uh, it was I was nominated for Trayvon. Oh, it's for Trayvon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. I thought it was for Fire Fraud. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I, I, I mean, look, it, it completely took us by surprise. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had no idea that that really it was even submitted, and it was for it was for a news and documentary Emmy. It wasn't a day. T- um, excuse me. It wasn't a primetime Emmy thing. So it wasn't like I was, you know, walking the red carpet, rubbing elbows with celebrities yeah. out there. It was a really unexpected gift uh, to be nominated for that. We were, it was me alongside the other editors, we were nominated for best editing for a documentary series. And then the series also was nominated for best social social justice issue documentary. Um, so, you know, unfortunately we didn't win either category, but I, I, I definitely wasn't going into it expecting to win for 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 the editing category all right so devin kikana what's what's next for you man uh you know i'm not sure i'd say whenever once michael this michael jordan project is done um definitely some vacation time and uh we'll so you're not gonna jump in right to the next gig no unless like the dream gig gets offered to me and it starts you know a couple like a week after michael jordan ends and that's just what it is and of course you know i'll always i'll always take the great gig you know, I'm not in a rush, and uh, and I'm lucky not to be in a rush. I don't have the next gig lined up, but I've got some time to figure that out, and um, hopefully, hopefully, something great. Amazing, it will be, dude. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks yeah. again for having me, yeah, man. dude. Always great to see much you. Much love. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.